My name's Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a great privilege for us to be here on this, on this Easter morning. He is risen. Isn't that awesome? I mean, do you realize the implications of your faith? Do you realize how you, your life has been radically altered because of the resurrection, because of this one day in human history, the confidence that we have? The book of Ecclesiastes said this, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We have this idea deep down inside us that we are going to live forever. Maybe we don't understand it fully, but we are going to live forever, if you will. There's a Roman philosopher that lived exactly the same time of Jesus, Seneca. And this is what he said. Listen to what he said. The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday into eternity. The Bible says this it is appointed for man to die once and to then to come into judgment. Jesus said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And that's what we come today to celebrate. We come to celebrate the empty tomb. We come to celebrate the resurrection. We come not to just celebrate the empty tomb and the resurrection, but the implications of that and how we're to live entirely different because of what Jesus has done for us. He calls and invites us to trust him. He calls and invites us to look to him and, and to look at the power of the resurrection for our individual lives. And what I want to do is I, I want to just take a few minutes and I want to just walk through the text. And we're going to come back and look at the implication for the text. But let me just walk through the text that um, Steve read to us earlier. The, the gospel writer writes that um, immediately after the death of Jesus, three days after, um, the women go to the tomb. And, and the first people at the tomb are they're, they're women. The first people at the tomb are women. And it's kind of interesting because of the women being there. Where you kind of have this idea of where, where's the men? The mention of women as witnesses was, was very, very unusual back then. Are you familiar with the sporting world and what happened this year, this uh, past week in, in, in the baseball world? A gal by the name of Alyssa Nakin, um, she coached uh, first base for the San Francisco Giants. First time a woman had been on the field and coached first base um, in professional baseball. It, it's, it's very, very unusual. No one, that, that just doesn't happen. Well, it's kind of similar back to the time of Jesus. Women and, and their testimony and giving evidence for maybe a legal document or maybe there's something going on in the courts. You know, they, they weren't held very high, uh, very highly with this idea of, of listening and, and grabbing onto their testimony. Uh, there was a Josephus, uh, a Jewish writer, and he says, you know, we should not listen to the testimony of women. That, that was too, some, some 2,000 years ago. And, and yet here we have in this, in this text, Mark, what is Mark doing? Mark is using women as a witness, as a testimony in a historical document. He's writing about the life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the first thing he does is he listens he lists out these women. Why would he do that? If, if people don't resonate and accept the testimony, why would he do that? Unless it's true. The only reason he would do that is if it's true. And notice the women go to the burial site. Well, they're going to they anoint the body. And maybe they go thinking, well, they, they buried Jesus really, really quickly. You know, Nicodemus and Joseph gathered the body and they, they kind of wrapped it up and they, they, they put him in the tomb. And, and, and now what do they want to do? They want to the, they go to the tomb site. They want to go and they want to roll the tombstone away and they want to anoint Jesus' body. I, I think what they really want to do is they want to pay honor, they want to pay homage to him and who he is and what he's done. They want to give him the proper respect due to him. And so they're, they're walking to the tomb and all of a sudden they begin to think to themselves, wait a minute. They, they roll this giant tombstone over the entrance to the tomb. How, how are we going to move that? By the way, did they not think about that in the first place? Did you ever wonder if they asked the disciples? Will you go to the tomb and you ever wonder that? 
Now, there's things in the text that we don't know. I think we're allowed to ponder those kinds of things that were going on. So they get to the, they get to the tomb and, and they kind of look in. And that's the way that it would be. And there would be a tomb and then you would go and then there would be another smaller opening and they would go inside that smaller opening and, and if they're in that smaller opening, that's where the body would be laid. They would go in there and look and they see this angelic being in white sitting there. Sitting there. Isn't that interesting? Almost like he was expecting them. You know, the, the tombstones rolled away, the empty bodies. There's, there's no explanation for any of these things. And, and they're alarmed. The ladies are alarmed at the words that the, the angelic being says to them. Mark chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Notice what he speaks on the screen. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's the way the Gospel of Mark ends. You know, some people don't agree that the, the verses that come after that are the proper ending. And there's probably a reason for that. Because Mark ends in a very, very odd kind of way. I mean, it, it ends with more questions than anything else, doesn't it? Don't you want to know what happened? What did they do? Well, what do you mean it says they, they said nothing to enemy? They didn't say anything to anyone? I mean, think about it. Women at the tomb? Where are the disciples? Where are they at? Guys, we're, we're, you're supposed to take the message on. You're supposed to, to carry on the cause of Christ. What, what happened to, the, to this tombstone? How did it get rolled away? Is, there's no explanations for anything like that. The angelic being comes to them and speaks. And, and by the way, when the angelic being he speaks, he says the exact same words that Jesus had actually said in Mark chapter 14. He was kind of paraphrasing Jesus' words, if you will. And they do exactly the opposite of what they're instructed to do. What do you mean? They said nothing to anyone they were afraid because they were afraid. There's fear, trembling, all of these emotions going on in their life. How are they supposed to respond, if you will? And that's the way that this gospel ends. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 talks about what? This is the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how it begins. And what Mark has done for 16 chapters, he said, this is who Jesus is. This is his life. This is what he said. These are all of the wonderful miracles that he's done. And I think what happens is he comes to the end. He ends it this way because we, you and I, are invited to fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection? What do you believe about the things that he taught? What do you believe about the miracle? What do you believe about all of these things? What are the implications of the life of Jesus in your life? What are the implications of the empty tomb? Is it just a story? Is it made up? Is it a myth? How do we resonate with the resurrection story and the empty tomb? What I want to do is I want to go through and I want to just walk through four implications, the greatest day in history, four implications, if you will, of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Mark, writing to Roman believers, wanted them to put together the entire picture of Jesus. What do you believe about the resurrection? What do you believe about eternity and where you will spend? Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you. On a morning like today, we have this wonderful testimony from the gospel writer of Mark, a wonderful testimony of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he comes to offer us. And Father, you come to 
invite us to consider the claims of Christ and to be changed, to be changed on the inside, to be transformed people. You offer to us a new way to live our lives. And Father, all of that is based upon your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that this morning we would be able to see the implications of the empty tomb and the resurrection in our lives. Father, the the Bible says to open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your law. I pray that you would do that this morning. And all God's people said, amen. So four ways, if you will, four implications for uh, the resurrection. Number one is this. We're going to see in verse 16. There's no situation be. There's no situation beyond God's power. Look, look at verse 6. He says, they, they, they come to the tomb and the angelic being sent, and don't be alarmed. He said, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You see, with the empty tomb, God was not finished with the Easter story. Jesus did go before him. We can look at the gospel. We can look at other records. We know that Jesus did go before them. He went before the disciples. He was in a room with them. He just passed inside the room. They saw him. They touched. They heard his language, if you will. Jesus appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus. He, he talked to them, explained to them from the Old Testament the wonderful scriptures that ultimately pointed to him. Peter would write two letters. Peter, who experienced, saw the resurrected Jesus, who knew about his life, would write two letters. We have evidence for the life of Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, there was 500 people at one time who actually saw the resurrected Christ. It couldn't have been a, it's some kind of uh, mirage, if you will. They saw the resurrected Jesus. I would imagine on that, that Friday as, as Joseph and Nicodemus come and they, they collect the body and they wrap it up. And they go and, they, and then they bring Jesus in and they lay him inside that, that chamber and then they lay him on that, that flat thing. God scoffs and he laughs in heaven like he does many times in the Psalms. He scoffs and he laughs because he knows the outcome. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that Jesus is going to come back to life. He's going to breathe. He's going to raise up. He's going to walk around. He's going to leave that tomb. And God is going to be vindicated because God's going to bring him back to life. And, and we know that because from the very, very beginning, God's purpose for Jesus is that he would come into this world in the incarnation. He would do many wonderful, powerful miracles. And then he would go to a cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this is what God had planned from the very, very beginning of the world. That Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. The resurrection and the empty tomb remind us that God's power over death reminds us that we, you and I, there's nothing that we could experience in life. Nothing that we can experience in life that he can't handle and he can't deal with. Nothing is beyond God's power. I was reading through the Old Testament last week. And, you know, we see God's power manifested in ways that make us scratch our head. And you go, really? I'm reading in the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a judge. And, and then they, they kind of get back on track. And then bad things happen. And then God raises up another judge because the people keep abandoning him. In Judges chapter 7, God's bringing judgment upon the people again. Why? Because they walked away from him. And, and the Midianites, the Midianites, these, these bad, evil people, they are so many people and they are so oppressed that the Israelites, what are they, they're taking their stuff and they're hiding in the hills. The Midianites come in the middle of the fields and then they, and they just take over. For years they've been suffering at the hands of the Midianites. And God says, Gideon, you're it. You're the judge. You're the one I'm going to use to free our people once again. And you remember what God did to deal with the Midianites? 
So this is what I want you to do. I want you to gather all these people. And then he finally realizes that as, he, as Gideon gathers all these, there's too many. And he reduces all of this number down to, down to 300 people. Remember, there's Midianites all over the land. And God reduces this people down to 300 people. This group down to 300 people. And remember how he frees them? He says, this is what I want you to do. Break your camp into three teams of 100 people. And I want you to take uh, a, a lantern in this hand. I want you to take a trumpet in this hand. And then I want you to go and I want you to break the glass and I want you to sound the trumpet. Really, that's God's plan for dealing with all of these Midianites? That's exactly what they did in obedience to God. They blew the trumpet, a trumpet for Gideon and a trumpet for the Lord. These people did nothing. Why? Because God's power has the power to radically change our life. And if God can deal with the Midianites in the book of Judges, he can raise somebody back from the dead. Nothing is beyond God's power in our life. Why do we know that? Because after the resurrection, some eight weeks after the resurrection, all of these people who'd scattered, all of these men who had scattered, they're back in the city of Jerusalem eight weeks later. And they're in the temple courts and they're talking about people, about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They're sharing the gospel with other people. The Jerusalem leaders come up to him and they grab him and they throw him in prison. And they're in prison. And I want you to listen to how the message is described to uh, the, the disciples and what they are to go out and proclaim to the people. Notice how the, the, the angel gives them this message. Acts chapter 5 verse 20. It says this, go stand in the temple courts, you disciples, and tell the people what? The full message of this new life. That's what the gospel is. That's what the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is. It's not just this heady stuff. It's about a new way to live your life, a new quality of life. It's a new way to live because of the power of the resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Notice what it says. Paul's describing this new life. It says this. Just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too may what? Live a new life. Your life, my life, can be transformed by the gospel about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are you going through right now? What are you experiencing right now? What is dead in your life? God says, I can make a resurrection from that, and I can radically change the way that you live. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he's praying to the people at Ephesus. And I want you to listen to his words. Notice how he prays about the implications, if you will, of the death of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What he wants is he wants us to know right here, deep down inside of us, our heart, our heart and our minds, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. What does Paul pray? Listen, I want you to know the hope of his calling. You and I have been given hope because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection. Riches, riches, not just riches out there, not houses and cars and things like that, but the riches of knowing and being like Jesus, who he is, conforming us ultimately into the image of his son. All, the, all of the blessings that have been given to Jesus, 
have been given to us. That's the inheritance that you and I are going to have. And, and what's the last thing? This incomparably great power. Do you like power in your life to do things? What, what Jesus reminds us in the resurrection of the empty tomb that he's called us to a new quality of life, if you will. So yesterday we're setting up outside and uh, I, I'm kind of, I'm not a very good setter upper people. I just <laughs> tell me what to do and I'll do it. So I, I'm literally outside and, and I'm standing by the garbage can and, and a man comes up and he's throwing some things into the, uh, into the trash can. I recognize him, he's probably doing some cleaning here. And as I walk up to him, he goes, uh, we said hi, we were greeting each other. He goes, he goes, I was hoping to talk to the pastor here. And I'm like, you know, is he around? And I'm like, well, what do you, depends on what you want, you know, what do you want? <laughs> Standing by that trash can, he told me about one of his family members. He was run over by a bus. Literally run over by a bus, probably with the last week or two. Tears are streaming down his face. Right next to that trash can. This man's feeling hopeless. When you get in that circumstance, when you get in that place where your world has been rocked by something really, really bad, where do you turn? Where can you turn? See, the resurrection says, I can turn to Jesus because he raised somebody back from the dead. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going to be all right in life, but it means that I can give myself to him. And this new quality of life means that I can, I can trust him to work all the bad stuff out. So I put my arm on this guy and we prayed for this family member. And I asked that God would, would reveal his might and his power and his peace to him. See, the resurrection reminds us this. The word hopeless is, is, is obsolete. We've been given a new quality of, of life. The word impossible becomes meaningless because of who Jesus is in the resurrection. You know, Thursday night we, we gathered here for this, this Monday Thursday service. And there's a great song that we sang. All the songs that we sing are really good. But sometimes when you come and they just, they just capture your heart, you leave and you're going, oh man, I'm going to take that one home. So I took this one home and, and Saturday morning I woke up really early. I couldn't sleep, woke up really early. And I looked at Wonderful, Merciful Savior on my phone. And I probably listened to that song 10 times. A variety of people, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. And this is what captured my, my attention from the song. It says this, you offer hope when our, our hearts have hopelessly lost their way. You offer hope when our hope has hopelessly lost our way. And that's what the life, death, burial, and resurrection gives to us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb says this, there's nothing that I cannot deal with in life. What, what are you going through right now? What are you experiencing right now? What are the difficulties? What are the challenges that you're going through? What God says is, listen, you can trust me for the empty tomb. You can trust me for my power. It may not always be what you want it to be, but what I can do because of the resurrection, because of the empty tomb, what I can do, I can come and I can reframe your life because of Christ living inside of you, because of the Spirit of God living inside of you. That's the new quality of life. The Word of God, the Spirit of God living inside of us to give us a new quality of life. Second implication is this. We can trust the words of Jesus. We can trust the words of Jesus. Look at verse 7 again. The, angel, the angelic being speaks to the ladies and says this. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You know, when the, when the women went to the tomb, they were not singing, oh, happy day. They were not singing, oh, happy day. Their hearts were absolutely broken. They were in despair. 
Go back and read the text. They're bewildered. They're frightened. Their, their hearts have been shattered because the one that they come and hoped and put their faith and their confidence in, this guy by the name of Jesus, the one that they look to has now been crucified. He's been killed and he's placed in an empty tomb. And notice what the, the angel says. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Over and over and over in the life of Jesus, it wasn't just about miracles. It wasn't just about all of this stuff that he was going to do. What he was telling them over and over and again that they didn't get is, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice and I'm going to die on the cross for this sin. But three days later, I'm going to come back. Acts chapter 8, verse 31. Acts chapter 9. In, in, or not Acts, Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 20. It says, he, he says this. I, I'm actually going to teach you about my life, death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to teach you all of these things. Mark chapter 10, verse 44, it says this. He took them aside and said, listen, I want you to know and understand that I'm going to die on the cross for all the sins of the world and I'm going to be raised three days later. And what Jesus was replying, what Jesus was doing to the disciples, to the ladies, what he was challenging them was, listen, go back and look at the Old Testament. Look at all of these wonderful promises of how God prophesied all of these wonderful things about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and how we would come and radically change our life. Jesus began to teach them. Listen, you can, you can find fulfillment. You can see me in the Old Testament. You can find types. You can see my teaching. You can see all of these wonderful things prophesied in the book of Isaiah. All of these wonderful things point ultimately to who Jesus is and what he would come to do. Why? Because they are a fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these wonderful prophets, all of them simply point to Jesus and who he is and what he would have done. And just as all of these prophecies ultimately point to the life of Jesus, Jesus said this, you can trust my words. You can trust my words. John chapter four, the woman at the well, he's speaking to this woman at the well and he has this conversation with her and she goes back to her village, she goes back to her people. She said, I think I found the Messiah. And he told me everything about my life. He knows everything about me. He knows my marriages. He knows my past. He knows all about me. And this man is absolutely true who he is. And they ran and began to, to talk and converse with Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. I'm going to turn back in the Gospel of Mark. One chapter. Mark chapter 14. I want to give you a text about how you and I can trust the very words of Jesus even as he went to the cross. Mark chapter 14, it says this, they sang a, a, a hymn in the Mount of Olives and they sang a hymn and then Jesus turns to his disciples and says this, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. You all fall away, he told the disciples. Why? Because it is written. So what Jesus is doing is getting ready to go to the cross and then he quotes from the, the prophet Zechariah and he says this, you will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then he says these words, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Think about the context of that. The context is this, the disciples are going to run, they're going to scatter. Peter, just after this, is boldly going to confess. He's going to say, listen, all of them may fall away. All of the other guys are going to fall away, but I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to go to the cross to you. And what has Jesus been telling them? He's been telling them, I'm going to go to the cross, and after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In other words, he's telling them before him what exactly is going to happen. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Peter, you're going to deny me, and after I die a cruel and brutal death on the cross, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go before you. Mark chapter 14, verse 28, that's what he says. But after I've risen, 
I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The same words the angelic being said in our text, Mark chapter 16. What are the implications of that? I can trust the words of Jesus. You can trust every word of Jesus that he ever said to us. Think about it. You ever fudge in the things that you say? You ever 100% truthful? You know, if you get a new job and maybe you're working through some legal documents or you're working through a job description, and don't you want to know exactly what's on there so that you have a base in which to operate? Or maybe you're buying a house or you're buying a car. Don't you want to know that the people that you're dealing with and everything that's being said is absolutely correct? Don't you, don't you want to have confidence in that? Uh, a year or so ago, Drew and I went across the river, went into Illinois, and we were looking at a Jeep to buy. And so we went to this dealer, and we were talking about the Jeep, and we were talking about prices. And, and the person that we were dealing with made this comment. She said this word. She said, um, this is such a low price that the finance guy could lose his job. I thought to myself, really? This guy is willing to risk his job by giving us this low of price? That's not what I believe. Our words matter. And every word that Jesus spoke to us as recorded in the Bible means this, that we can trust him for who he is and what he's done. Every word that he ever spoke. You have words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? John chapter 6. Everybody else is running away. Everybody else is abandoning Jesus. And their conclusion is we have nobody else to go to. You have words of eternal life. Why? Because he's going to go to the cross. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And every word that Jesus says we can trust. So when I was a kid and as parents, what we would do, we would read Dr. Seuss books to our children. We had the whole arsenal of Dr. Seuss books, right? So there is a Dr. Seuss book called Horton Hatches the Egg. Is anybody familiar with that? If you're young, oh man, you missed out. Horton Hatches the Egg. And what we know about Horton Hatches the Egg is there's Horton is an elephant. And evidently there's this really, really quacky duck. It's a quacky duck. Has a, has a little egg. And she doesn't want to watch the egg anymore. And she's going she's gonna to go. And Horton is asked, will you stay here and will you watch over this egg? He says, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Horton the elephant says, yeah, I'll do that. The quacky duck leaves and never comes back. Never comes back. And you remember the line that Dr. Seuss gives to Horton the elephant that makes such incredible sense? He says this, the elephant says this, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and elephant is faithful 100%. Now listen, I don't know if elephants are faithful 100%. Never really had a conversation with an elephant before. I've seen them. I guess they don't forget. But think about the words of Jesus. Jesus is absolutely faithful in who he is, and he said he was. I, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And three days later, I, I'm going to raise back from the dead. And by the way, when I'm, just, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. And there you will see me. Mark chapter 13, it says this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We can trust who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The very truthfulness, the veracity of the person, the character of Jesus says that we can trust him for who he is.
The implication for that is this. When my life falls apart and something bad happens in my life and somebody's standing by a, a trash can and needs someone to pray, I, I have a resource in the Bible. I have a resource in, in the life of Jesus that I can take to this person and, and I can speak truth to them. Listen, my brother passed away February. I don't even know what day it was. There's so much mystery surrounding my brother. Even today, two months later, we don't have a full indication of what happened to my brother suddenly passing away. But what I can do is I can, I can look to the life of Jesus and I can look to the words of Jesus and I can find peace and comfort in his words and in his deeds and what he's done. That's the implication of the truthfulness of God's word. Matthew chapter 11 says this, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you weary and burdened? You need rest? Then come to Jesus. That's what he says. I, I know all about you. I know past, present. I know all about you. I created you. Will you come to me? Jesus in John chapter 14, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He says, okay, guys, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm exiting here. And they have all of these questions because they don't know what's going on. They don't really understand. And John chapter 14, listen to the words of Jesus and how this one verse, if you will, can radically change our life before we leave here today. John chapter 14, verse 3 says this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Notice what he says. If I go prepare a place for you. I, what I believe is this, that even right now, Jesus is preparing a place for me. Uh, he's preparing a place. However you want to describe that, he's preparing something for me. Second thing is this, I'm going to come back. I know that one day Jesus is going to come back. That's the second implication. Third thing is this, I'm going to take you to be with me. I'm going to take you to be with me. Jesus is one day going to come back and he's going to take me to be with you. And notice the implications at the end of this. That you also may be where I am. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am going to ultimately be with Jesus and in his presence. Why? Because I have the confidence in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb, the resurrection reminds me of the truthfulness of God's word and what he's done for us. And I hang on to that. I hang on to that. Third implication from the resurrection and the empty tomb is this. Verse 6. Our past can be forgiven. What are you hanging on to? What is that thing that nobody else knows about? What are you hanging on to? Like a Mark chapter 16, verse 6. Don't be alarmed. They're fearful. They're frightened. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You, you see the one word in there, crucified? What, what's he talking about? He said crucified. He went to the cross. He died a brutal, horrible death, ultimately for the sins of the world. He was crucified on an ugly cross. The, the, the most brutal type of death that you can ever have. Crucified. The, the angelic being reminds him that he was crucified, but also what else? He's risen. Death, life, crucified, risen from the dead. And, and what the angelic being simply reminds us is that Jesus' life, going to the cross, was all 
a plan. It was a purpose so that you and I might experience the forgiveness, if you will, of our sin. Forgiveness of this idea that we've been separated from a holy God because of our sinful nature. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this, and Jesus told them, go back and look at the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, what? but to serve and give his life as a ransom for what? Yeah, a, a ransom. That, that means we're, we're held captive. Something is wrong with us. We're slaves, if you will, to sin. And what Jesus has come, he's, he's, he's come, listen, I'm, I've, I've come to set you free. You know, what is that thing, that issue that you cannot break in your life? The Bible says through the power of the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can release us and He can give us freedom because He can give us the forgiveness of sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says this, but you know that He appeared in order what? In order to take away our sin. In order to remove the pain and the suffering that you and I live with on a daily basis. You know, we have, we have a bunch of grandkids. Every once in a while, um, our, our grandkids, will get a, they'll get a little wanky. They'll get a little sideways and something will happen and somebody's crying in the next room. And so when somebody's crying in the next room, what do you do? You, you go in there and you say, I'll just, I'll just use Max. I'll just use little Max. My Max, what's happening? Well, why are you crying? What's going on in your life? You know, what's happening? Well, he's, he's crying. He's telling me all these things. Doing. And what do you want to do? You, I just want to, man, Max is just cute. You just want to grab your arms around him, put your arms around him, hug him. Say, Dude, I, I got this. What do you need? Help, let me help you here. Don't we want to take away the pain and the suffering? That's what Jesus wants to do. He sees us in our sinful condition. He sees the things that we do. He sees the ways that we rebelled and walked away from. And what he wants to do is he says, come to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap my arms around you. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you the forgiveness of sin, if you will. Think about the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross, Jesus in the middle, two thieves on. And at, at one point during the crucifixion scene, they're both mocking Jesus. And then something happens. Something shifts for one of them. And he begins to change. And even on the cross, he goes through this internal change, if you will, an internal transformation based upon him looking at Jesus the way he's dying, watching him and the words that he's saying. And he goes through this internal transformation. And he says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This guy did absolutely nothing good in his life, deserved the penalty of death. And what Jesus does is in his grace is, I'm going to give you the forgiveness of sin. Why? Because all of sin for all of humanity was laid on Jesus at the cross. That's why he was crucified. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? My life, my sin, all the, the, the horrible things that I did and continue to do are laid on the person of Jesus. And he goes to the cross and he offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for me. He dies in my place, if you will. See, I believe that the early church they were, a, they were a, a resurrected community. Simon the leper was there. And Mary Magdalene who had a lot of demons. And there's that sinful, scornful woman. And there's this guy by the name of Peter who denied Jesus and walked away. 
When you look at the resurrected community, you see all of these people, tax collectors, you see all of these bad people, people that we wouldn't want to necessarily associate with. And they're all there. There's this resurrected community whose lives have absolutely been transformed by the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ because of the power of the resurrection. They are cleansed, changed on the inside out, and they live this new and wonderful life. Book of Colossians talks about this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Notice how God's grace, God's pardon program is explained. It says this He forgave us most of our sins. No, it says all of our sins. All of our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations, that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, what? Nailing it to the cross. At the cross, all of our sin is placed upon the unique person of Jesus. And you and I had this, this wonderful, wonderful transformation on the inside where we were forgiven of our sin. Jesus paid it all for you, and he paid it all for me. Are you glad for that? We don't have to pay for our own sin. Jesus offers this wonderful forgiveness, this wonderful way that our lives are transformed. But notice how personal it gets in the text. Look at verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you. Do you ever wonder why he singled out Peter? Most of us know why. Because Peter absolutely blew it. Jesus, if all fall away, I will not fall away. I will hang with you absolutely to the end. Not only did he boldly proclaim that to Jesus in front of everybody else, but he truly believed that that's what he would do. He would stay with Jesus all the way to the end. And, and you know, you, you often wonder that did the words of Jesus, where he said that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before your heavenly Father. You wonder if in Peter's mind, as he's reflecting on the life of Jesus and the things that he said, you wonder if in his mind he's thinking, well, you know what, I, I denied him. I actually did exactly what Jesus said we're not to do. I denied him before men. It's over for me. And Jesus didn't do that. He said, go, go talk to, to the disciples and Peter and tell them I'm going to go ahead of them and I'm going to meet them in Galilee where I'm going, to, I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to reveal myself to them. Listen, the Bible is a record of failure of people. Abraham, David, Peter, Paul. The Bible is a record of people who fell, if you will, and were not ultimately perfect. What did they need? They needed the grace of God. They needed the forgiveness of God. Peter needed that. Paul needed that. All of these people need the very, very grace of God. And, and what the, the angel promises here is, go tell Peter, I'm going to go ahead of him into Galilee, and what am I going to do? I'm going to restore him back to ministry. I'm going to restore him back to a fruitful ministry. Why? Because we have this wonderful forgiveness of sin because of Jesus. You, you see the implications of the resurrection? the power of the resurrection, the why this day is, is so radically beautiful to us. No situation that you're going through is, is, is out of bounds. We have this, the words of Jesus that we can absolutely trust in our life. We have the forgiveness of sin. Last thing and then I'm done is this. My, my, my future is secure. Is your future secure? Are you absolutely sure of your future? If you were to leave here today 
and die. Did you, are you absolutely sure of your future, where you're going to go and what you're going to do? Well, I don't need to talk about that. Uh, I've got many, many years to live. I'm, I'm going to live for, really? Yeah, my brother thought that. Other people think that all the time. To the disciples and to these ladies, their future was secure. Look at, look at verse 7 again. Some, some of those beautiful words in the New Testament. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In, in the Gospel of Luke, the angel says this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Interesting. Why do you seek the living? Why are you here? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? What I want to do is I, I want to wrap this up. I want to focus on something. I want to go back to the women. I want to go back to the women and the implications of their role. But let me ask you something. If, if you read through the Gospel of Mark at the ending and you read through all, where are the men? Where are they at? They've all scattered. They've all disappeared, right? Jesus is on the cross. He dies and then they're gone and we don't know anything about them. Listen to how Mark describes the women. In Mark chapter 15, verse 40, it says the women were watching. What are they doing? They're watching the crucifixion scene. They're watching from a distance. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it says this. Those women who were watching had also followed him at a distance. Isn't that interesting? He's now using a kind of discipleship kind of word. The disciples, and now the women are, are following. They paid for Jesus' means. They paid for all the disciples. They're watching. They're following. In chapter 15, verse 47, it says, They saw where Jesus was laid. They saw him. They, they saw the tomb. Mark chapter 16, verse 4, it says, They looked up and they saw. What did they see? They saw that the stone had been rolled away. In verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, They saw a young man dressed. Chapter 6, it says, you were looking for Jesus the Nazarene. In chapter 16, verse 7, it says, there you will see him. Do you see what Mark does? Mark uses the women as witnesses to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were looking. They were following. They saw and are witnesses in a historical document about who Jesus is and what would happen in his life. The men didn't see all of that, but they did. And what God does, what the Spirit of God does in his providence, he uses this wonderful example of these women whose testimony would not have been accepted. He uses them as an example of Jesus' life because they loved him, they cared for him. And they knew that their lives had been radically transformed all the way from the crucifixion to the gravesite to seeing Jesus resurrected. Beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace and who he would use. So let me ask you something. Where, where are you at with the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe life is good for you. Man, that's good. Great. Oh, that's great. But the implications of the empty tomb, the implications of the resurrection, they're absolutely beautiful. He wants to transform us on the inside, ultimately to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be able to trust the very words when life is difficult, when life is challenging, life is hard. He says, will you trust me with your very life? Will you trust the very words? He wants to secure our future. You know, John 14 reminds me that I have a secure future because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me in my life. Let me pray. Father,
Today is just a wonderful day that we set aside to celebrate the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And Father, we know that we ultimately are to celebrate the resurrection every day because every day is a new day with you. The Bible talks about us being new creations, that if we're a, a new creation in Christ, the old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. And I gotta believe, but because of who you are and what you've done, and because of your power toward us, Lord, every day is a new day for us, a new day for us to trust you, a new day for us to find new life and transformation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know who Jesus is, Lord, I just ask that you would simply prompt their mind to consider the claims of Jesus. Consider who he is, consider his life, consider his very words, Lord, consider the things that he said, and the fact that he was offered as a sacrifice for sin. And Father, for those of us who claim the name of Jesus, I ask that you would make us bold witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Lord, your word is true. Because you live, we will live. And we look forward to and anticipate that day when we will be with you forever. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.